You're tuned in to the Living Hero podcast at livinghero.com. Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today our program features an interview with novelist Ellen Bryson. She is the author of The Transformation of Bartholomew Fortuno, a novel about being different, being human, and finding redemption. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in English from Columbia University and a Master of Arts in Creative Writing from Johns Hopkins in Washington, D.C. Ellen Bryson began as a professional modern dancer. She then shifted her focus to the philanthropic field, where she worked for over a decade in both private and community foundations. A world traveler, she has lived in the Middle Eastern country of Bahrain and in Argentina, South America, where being an outsider, both in language and culture, helped inform the message of this, her first novel. Let's give people an idea of what your novel is about. Well, the the novel is about uh, the world's thinnest man. His name is Bartholomew Fortuno, and his belief is that his body is a gift. The story is set in 1865. P.T. Barnum had something called Barnum's American Museum, a place filled with displays and performances, and part of what he had were a group of curiosities. And this is a book about those curiosities. And by curiosities, I mean the resident fat woman, the resident skinny man, there's a rubber man, and the world's tallest woman. And it's really a novel about how these characters live as a clan inside the museum and how they relate to the outside world. Actually, it is kind of like a summer camp or a school or something. It reminded me of that. I want to share a brief quotation from John Gardner's classic and then controversial book on moral fiction with you in the audience and ask you to comment on it. He said, Moral fiction communicates meanings discovered by the process of the fiction's creation. We can see the process working when we look through the drafts of a certain kind of writer's work. And then he goes on to write about the many, many drafts that Tolstoy did of Anna Karenina Mm -hmm. and how Tolstoy revises and revises the reality of the story, presumably to get to his own true perception of, of humanity and reality and what rings true for him. You know, this always fascinated me, this idea of how the author's changing the work, but the work is also changing the author in a sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and maturing the perceptions there. Now, I know you worked on your book for a long time. And I so did. would you comment on what Gardner's saying there with regard to your own process of creation? I would love to. I think it's a fascinating process to build something from out of nowhere, basically. And I know that a lot of writers will work from an outline. I think it's very wise of them. But I also think that it can be extremely limiting in terms of what potential one can find in the work itself. Um, In this particular book, I had the ending almost from the beginning. And I tended to work inside to pull out some, you know, How did we get from here to there? What does it mean when this character discovers this incident? And it started to grow almost organically. I still had no idea what the story was. And it took, oh, I don't know, six drafts and real deep drafts 
of reorganizing and asking questions and listening to the text itself. And I could have spent the rest of my life on this, mm. um, going deeper and deeper and deeper. What does it and mean, I, listening to the text itself? Because the text talks back. I, I, I think that the creative process isn't isolated. And again, I think that's the difference between working from an outline and not. Although some people may be able to work from an outline and still have that back-and-forward conversation. But characters become real. Um, they object if you force them to do things that aren't natural for them. They object if you don't tell enough of their story or too much. Uh, it just feels wrong as a writer. And you have to listen to that. You said you sort of had the ending in mind from the beginning. How did it first come to you to do this story? Uh, the beginning uh, came from a, I had a dream. I had this, uh, an image of six sisters, and they were standing in a circus tent. And it was, it was more contemporary than 1865. It was probably 1940s or 50s for the feel of it. And they were lit from above, and they were all looking up, and they were calling out their names. And every sister had this big, beautiful beard. And it was just <laughs> such a bizarre, such a bizarre image. And they called out Ayel, which is one of my characters, Esmeralda, whom I, who still sits in my head saying, write me, write me. And I don't remember the rest of the, of the sisters' names. But that was the beginning impulse. Okay, now you really have me riveted. How about <laughs> reading us a passage? Sure. Okay. And this is my main character, um, Bartholomew Fortuno, who again is the thinnest man in the world. And the story is set up that He's looking out his window. He's been in the museum for 10 years. He is becoming a little tired and bored with what he does, although he still claims it's the best thing in the world to do. And outside of the window, Barnum shows up in the middle of the night with a mysterious woman who's veiled, uh, hidden, very unlike Barnum to do such a thing. And there are a number of chapters that it goes through for Fortuna to find out who this woman is. And at one point, they bring in a portrait, and it's covered. And what I'm going to read you is when he finds the portrait, and he pulls off the, the covering, and he says, and there it was, her portrait. Every ounce of me prickled with excitement as the image of I.L. Adams stared down at me from atop a throne set in a background of old olive trees and clouded skies, tinted a deep purple so rich it was almost black. And she was stunning, simply stunning. Her face, her skin, her bright red hair, all beautiful. But the most stunning of all, she sported the most astounding beard I have ever laid my eyes upon. Fire-red and passionate, it erupted from her face like an uncaged animal, roaming over voluminous breasts and reaching out at the end like tentacles of some man-eating primordial beast. <laughs> so that gives you... And that's just the portrait, not the woman. Yeah. There's a lot in this book about perception of beauty and what is acceptable, what is special. It's very, very hard. Any woman you can think of, no matter how beautiful she is, as soon as you put a beard on her, there's some part of you that goes, ew. It's very, like, especially a big, full beard. And for my character, she is beautiful because of that, because their whole world revolves around difference, not, not being the same. And so for, for a man who prides himself 
in the fact that he is bone thin and can reveal himself truly. This is his perception to the, to the world of saying, you know, this is who you really are inside. And it is my job to show you this. When he sees a woman with a full beard, for him it's just, you know, it is the ultimate in beauty. It's so fascinating. Um, it, your, your book causes us to look at certain philosophical and perceptual positions like beauty, mm-hmm. like um, free will, or mm-hmm. or one's fate. For instance, if somebody is born with, uh, you know, hair suit, a woman mm-hmm. with with hair, or or someone who is extremely obese. All these different people. Part of it is that they're they're born with certain genes, and part mm-hmm. of it is what they do with that. And this, the scenarios in the book call our attention to these things that are part of our own lives all the time, but you highlight them and and cause us to think about what is self-revelation? What is self-deception? Because as the story unfolds, Fortuno, who presents himself as someone is so self-aware and so self-assured, really things start to be uncovered about what he's perhaps been hiding. So it's it's fascinating. I found that most of the themes revolved around the topics of freedom and bondage in some way or, mm-hmm. or another, or, or mm-hmm. dependence or I, independence. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. And how the sense of self is formed, and, and who are we? I mean, the, the thing with the main character, and it comes up in other characters as well, but it's... It, especially for Fortuna, he was defined by a very strong mother and was taught that his specialness depended upon his ability to control himself. And it manifested later on in in a kind of perversion uh, of not eating. But originally, it was all about controlling one's impulses. The concept of mother, I think, then was very different and especially when it came to freaks, to curiosities, to prodigies, where, for example, there was something called maternal impression. It was a common belief that a child, a fetus, could be affected by things that happened to the mother. For example, if the mother was shocked by a loud noise, the child could come out deaf. Or one of my favorites is... If a dog scared a woman when she was pregnant in a very, very large, deep way, the child would come out looking like a dog. Oh. <laughs> and it was called. No, it was quite serious. It was quite serious. And there was the elephant man, if you remember that story, was yes. based on that, where the belief was that the mother was stampeded by a herd of elephants. And then as a result, her child was born looking like an elephant. So there, you know, there was a lot of mystery uh, around maternal impulse and how people were formed. And Fortuna in particular, because he had this repression, this secret, he created who he was in as proud of a way as he could. Um, although in the end, it didn't, it didn't really help him avoid the reality of who he was. Mm-hmm. So talk a bit about the transformation. What is happening with this character as he 
moves through the story? I think that it really is a is a matter of how characters interact and react to one another. And it's, it's the same in life. I mean, you're going along and you say, okay, I'm cool, and this is this, and everything's fine, and I know who I am. And you meet somebody who tells you something about yourself that you don't believe, that shocks you, and that somewhere deep down you know it's true. And so, the, you know, your first impulse, of course, is to never speak to that person <laughs> um, and discount them and hate them. But I think that's how change happens. And in this case, you know, he had an interaction with a woman who saw him and knew that he was hiding something. And it was very subtle how he was changed in the beginning. And the same woman, it was a result of her reality that shocked him into a new reality. Let's talk about the character of Ayel. From the beginning, she is presented as a mystery. And even though the ending does give us more information about her, we never really do get to know all that much about Ayel's inner life. And Mm -hmm. I I wondered if that was deliberate on your part. What does she represent to you? She seemed to represent, in a sense, the unknowable. I had actually taken out, I had a lot of backstory about this character. And again, Ayel is the woman with the beard. I decided it, it was better. It felt, I didn't decide, it felt better to not reveal every, I mean, to reveal her particulars wasn't deep enough. It wasn't, it didn't matter. I mean, she has an ultimate revelation in the end. And she's already, I mean, we're talking a lot about transformation. She's already complete. She's the one character that needs no transformation and was actually trying. She was willing, but she knew from the very beginning that there was no transformation for her because of the fundamental nature of her being. Hers was a secret, but not a secret. Her essence was unchangeable, and it didn't need to be changed. I guess complete. I have to go back to that word mm-hmm. because it's the best. And her question to Fortuna when they first met called up the question of choice. And there again, it's Absolutely. the free will or that which is determined. I wanted to ask you about Barnum also, since we're talking about the characters. And just mm-hmm. for everyone, there are four principal characters in this book. Bartholomew Fortuno, the skinniest man. And he has a best friend named Matina, a very likable woman. She's the fat lady. And they're really close. And then there's Ayel. And then, of course, there's P.T. Barnum, And his his wife. Yes. But he stands out because he's the historical character. So you must have done an awful lot of research for this book. And how did you come to look upon P.T. Barnum? And what does he mean to you? In all fairness, Barnum in this book is partially fictionalized. The information that I have on him, he was a fascinating man. If you think about 1865, there was no popular culture. There was really, you know, small family things to do. Or you could go to the saloons, or there was some theater that was fairly raucous. There were parlor readings. But there was no such thing as a public venue for everybody. And he created this. He created whatever he wanted. He was quite remarkable. He was famous for something called the Fiji Mermaid. This is one of his earlier hoaxes. Uh, He was famous for hoaxes, and people loved him for the ability to pull their leg. And he claimed that 
this famous professor discovered a mermaid in Fiji, brought her back to the States, that she was the most beautiful, amazing thing anybody had ever seen. He put in the newspapers pictures of this gorgeous mermaid with long, flowing hair. He set it up so that people had to pay extra to come and view her. There were lines all the way down Broadway. They come into the museum, and what the Fiji mermaid was was half monkey, half fish, dead, of course, sewn together and covered in paper mache <laughs> And he, he... Did he get away with he, it? Absolutely. Everything he touched, he'd put spin on, and there was no spin. And that's what's remarkable about him. I demonized him a bit because they say every story needs a villain. And I may have done him a disservice, I don't know. Um, I like him a little black like this. I worked off of a picture that I have of P.T. Barnum where he's sitting in a, an opera box and next to him on the stage is this little ballerina and she's doing this little kind of pirouette. And he is leering. He's just sitting there leering at this poor girl. And I thought, well, now there's a little spark in old P.T. Oh, of so, course. You know, I mean, I, the things he collected, right? I mean, he, he yes. definitely had a dark... But he also, he absolutely did, but he also, he viewed himself as moral. I mean, he uh, it was a teetotaler. There was no alcohol whatsoever in his museum or in his theaters. There was no obscenity. So he, he drew the moral line and, and dragged it, you know, right down the center. But on the other side, he had this underpinning. Uh, and I think that's what makes him so interesting. And surely the businessman and certainly the big party around his birthday was also quite an extravaganza that he threw for himself. He certainly... But not real, of course. I mean, that's all fictionalized. But you can certainly imagine him doing it. Barnum was known for two things, really, and that was the sucker is born every minute, which he did not say, and for the circus. And he was not a circus impresario until he was 61. And personally, I just find that very interesting. Yeah, thanks. It was also, I mean, it's an amazing time. It was 1865, and the Civil War had just ended. So New York was, was in a, a tizzy. You know, they had lived on the cotton trade. And, and we just know, lost Lincoln. And we just lost Lincoln. He's laid in state across the street from the museum. You know, it was an interesting time. I really have to tell everyone that when I read the book, I tapped into a vein of amusement that just really held me. I just found this sort of subliminal hilarity. And I found that when I went out in the streets of New York, I carried that with me. And I just <laughs> had this really quirky view on everyone, you know, just people walking their dogs or, you know, pouring out the extra coffee so that they could put milk in, whatever. It just, everything struck me as a little funny. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very hard to do. And I wondered if that's the way you see the world. I mean, I was almost giddy for days. How did <laughs> you do that? I don't know. It's absolutely the way I see the world. I mean, I think the world is dark and complicated and difficult, and we have big jobs to do as beings. We're here to to do our own transformation, and it's hard work, and it's funny. I mean, if if you don't laugh, there's no there's no point. I think that you know that joy is a balance to the kind of dismalness of some of the things that we find ourselves going through. 
And to bring it back to the book a little bit, I think, you know, the birds, um, the birds are everywhere in here, and they're a symbol of joy and freedom and lightness. Uh, and I think it's the same thing. I think you always have to constantly balance that. I remember how it builds, you know, throughout the book, almost like music with the birds, you know, mm -hmm. their presence. And towards the end, it really builds delightfully. And I wonder if you could read one of the bird passages. Sure, I'd love to. You know, but the birds are Fortuna's transformation and his salvation. I'll read you a part from the end of the book, or close to the end of the book, and it's P.T. Barnum's 55th birthday party, and it's a very, very big deal. I'm going to read you a short passage. The audience let loose another round of hurrahs, and then on cue, in came the unicorn, followed by two aerialists, who, in smoldering finale, flew across the stage on burning trapezes as the orchestra played Happy Birthday to You. And finally, with everyone's attention riveted upward, the doors to all the little bird cages popped open. They had been rigged with strings, pulled by lads running along beneath them. And a hundred frenzied songbirds dashed out into the heights of the cavernous theater, a cockatoo and a conspicuous blue parrot among them as the boys released all the birds. The birds set free, swooped about in 50-foot drops, careening over our heads and then dashing up again, as if they were trying to make sense of a world without limits. I leaped to my feet with the rest of the audience, bedazzled by the spectacle, hope and fear rising in me in equal measure. Many of the birds settled on balconies or seat backs for a moment or two before taking off into the air again, and my heart soared with them. But an unlucky few seemed to lose their way, and rather than fly with their brethren, they swooped too high or too low and ended up smashing themselves against the walls, discovering the hard way exactly what freedom meant. Well, they're free from the cages, but they're still in <laughs> right. doors. And I remember that, you know, it's like yeah. levels, it's layers. And yes. that is how transformation is. You know, you sort of get out of one, one gate opens, and then you find you're in this other space. And there's so, always danger. Mm -hmm. At every level, there's danger. And the possibility of destruction and the end of the search. And there's the possibility of going further. Ellen, what do you think is the role of the artist in society today. Do you think that storytellers and artists can really get to people and impact their lives? Have you had literature in your own life that, oh that goodness, moved yes. you, that you drew upon, that gave you strength? Oh, of course. I mean, I personally think that art has a great capacity to move people and to change people. It's by transforming sensations and common experience into something separate enough, a story, a film, a painting, separate and defined enough, it gives us a chance as human beings to step back and look. And once you can step back and look, even for a second, you have an opportunity to see. And once you see, that changes you. Mm -hmm. I think that's the capacity of art. In a sense, it is a chance to stop the world long mm -hmm. enough so that you can go back and even re-examine, you know, for instance, the passages you read to us. One could go back and read those passages a month later, a year later, any part of the book that moved us, and, and go back and re-experience it. And then we, re we know it's us who's 
changed, mm-hmm. or it's us Absolutely. who has realized more because the text is exactly the same. Or there are some books that you can read at 15 that change your worldview completely, utterly, and you can carry them around with you for decades. But if you open it back up later, you go, what? And it, 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 it no longer has the capacity to move. Some things are time-sensitive or age-sensitive. Also, I've picked up books, and I think, oh, this is terrible. I'm not reading this book, and I put it down. And the following year, for some reason, I'll pick it up. I don't even know why. And it, it's amazing. So sometimes it's just our capacity to absorb and to open uh, or our timing along a, our path. They say that the, um, the teacher comes. What do they say? The teacher comes to you? You just have to be able to recognize The, the teacher them. appears when the student is ready, I think, exactly. is the story. And I think art can do the same thing. Yeah, and people can do it too. I mean, I'm thinking of the book now again and how Ayel appears to him at a time when perhaps he was ready to begin that therapeutic process mm-hmm. um, of, of unearthing this repressed trauma that he, he didn't even realize was no. in him. I often wonder what would have happened to this character had Ayel not shown up. Mm. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at people in life and they have moments where they're presented an opportunity and what happens if they don't take it. Personally, I find that frightening. You have to be aware. Or you have to be willing. You have to be brave. I mean, I don't think Fortuna wanted... He did not particularly want to change. I mean, in the beginning of this book, he was very arrogant and happy with himself and saying, I am the greatest, I am amazing. And that's, you know, that goes back to something like Kafka, the hunger artist, where the hunger artist was very, very proud of his capacity to fast, even if the world didn't understand that, didn't get it. But in this case, Fortuno used his arrogance as a blocking mechanism, as a shield to push away any kind of memory or reminder that who he thought he was wasn't true. I think it's a story that's so relevant to our world today and that people will enjoy it as entertainment but also find many, many layers for reflection. Um, what, what's up next for you? Are you working on any other fictional writings? I am, Chari. Thank you for asking. I've started a new book that I'm hesitant to talk about because I've learned that the story I think I'm writing usually isn't the story that I write. But I will say it's a, a, it's a kind of modified ghost story, and it's got a lot to do with schizophrenia, perhaps, because it might change, and snake oil. You know, the things that come in front of us that we know aren't true, but we buy them anyway because it really might fix your acne or the calluses on your feet or... So it's, you know, that kind of trickery. And it's a combination of those two things, and I'll see what happens. Oh, thanks for telling us that much. Well, I look forward to seeing that, however long it takes you, because I know you're you're really a craftsperson when it comes to your language. Please let our listeners know how to find you on the web. Sure. It's just ellenbryson.com. All right. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you. Special thanks for today's program go to audio engineer Charles DeMontebello of CDM Studios, New York.
Living Hero is a production of In This Regard, a fiscally sponsored project of Fractured Atlas, which serves as our nonprofit umbrella. We receive funding and in-kind contributions from the Puffin Foundation and from listeners like you. Your contributions are tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. Please help us continue to offer and grow this program. To access our archive of interviews, to post your comments, and to help us fund future programs, visit us at livinghero.com. Thanks for listening.